0: My name is Nick Samios, I'm the Director and Fund Manager here at Hermes Capital, and I am your live stream and podcast host, so uh, welcome to you. Today, Today, we're going to be talking about the farewell of JobKeeper, and uh, also the, the sort of slow phasing back, or the coming back of, uh, of wind-up notices. Wind-ups have hit the news uh, in a big way this week with um, Citibank acting, I believe, on behalf of... Um, uh credit Suisse taking a wind-up action against uh the the wyala steelworks um, uh, one steel uh, conglomerate and i've noticed in the paper that the journalists writing these articles don't really seem to fully understand what a wind-up notice is or how that process works. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about that. And we then also use that scenario. We're not going to discuss that scenario, but we're going to use that scenario as a bit of a roadmap for talking about what you should do when um, someone sticks a wind-up notice on on one of your clients and how you maybe should react to that if you're a bank, a supplier, employees, uh, you know, what you should be thinking. Um, We're also going to talk about the end of JobKeeper. Now, um, i've got uh, if we just put up slide 14 i saw this wonderful obituary by uh, one one of the friends of lunch money uh, louise Louisa shijabat she wrote this uh, obit to jobkeeper farewell jobkeeper born 30th of march 2020. Um, uh, to be buried April 2021. In your short life, you tried your best to help those most in need. After a quick conception, you were very welcomed and much-loved member of the Rescue Package family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a memorial service will be held at the Australian Tax Office towards the end of April. Like everything else about you, accountants have the details. So that was uh, a wonderful uh, a wonderful obit there by, by Louisa. Um, so I just thought I would share that with you to set the tone a little bit. Uh, for when we get to talk about JobKeeper. Now, before I introduce our first guest today, I would like to remind you to share, like, or subscribe uh, to our podcast or our live screen. Uh, hit the notification button if you're on YouTube. And that way um, you won't miss a single episode. And we're on all the podcasting platforms. So, uh, you know, you can listen to us while you're driving to and from your next uh, restructuring engagement, if you like. Um, okay, listen, without further ado, I will introduce our first guest for today, and that is David Mansfield.
1: Hi there, David. how are you?
0: Not too bad. How are you? I'm good. Now, David um, Mansfield is a restructuring partner at Deloitte Australia. Um, he's been there for, uh, for for some time. He was also at Moore Stevens before that. Moore Stevens in Parramatta?
1: Yeah, that's correct, yeah.
0: Um, um, so I, I, my, my, my connection to David actually Goes back more than probably any other person that I've, I've ever dealt with in my life. David and I actually knew each other when we were about five or six, I dare say. Um, indeed. Uh, David was a year behind me. But uh, so we, I've known you, David, longer than I've known probably anybody else that uh, that um, that I speak with today, including probably my, my younger brother. So there you go. Now, David, uh, tell me, what is it that's been keeping um, this, uh, this Deloitte partner busy this week?
1: Well, I think a lot of the inquiries we're getting at the moment are people trying to be proactive. So whether they're clients of the you know, business service area of Deloitte, uh, they've got probably coming off JobKeeper. They might be looking at issues around, um, uh, uh, particularly around maybe tax debt. Uh, so we're seeing quite a few inquiries about that. Companies that have built up tax debt during the JobKeeper process and they're now looking to wanting to make uh, payment arrangements with the tax office. So they're asking for our help on that. Um, so I guess that's people being proactive around that. We're certainly getting inquiries about other advisory sort of work as well. I mean, full insolvency work hasn't really started to flow yet, but the sort of things that we have been working on that space is we've had a couple of personal insolvency agreements where people have wanted to take advantage. that They think in this market creditors can going to be receptive to uh, proposals put forward, so we've had a few of those. And uh, we're certainly getting inquiries about voluntary administrations with the same sort of thinking that, Creditors want to, um, uh, oh sorry, the directors want to go to creditors early if they think they, they're going to put a proposal up to them. They think by going early, they may have a better chance of success than, you know going in subsequent months.
0: Okay, well that's that's very interesting. I mean, you, you've raised a couple of points there. Firstly, you you are seeing people being proactive. Um, I mean, I speak to insolvency people and they're not they're not necessarily getting a lot of even preemptive phone calls at this stage still but you are seeing people that are acting acting sort of anticipating for their own businesses or are they worried about their customers
1: oh no it's the it's it, well it, it's professional service firms that are, are, are referring clients to us um so yeah. it, it's for their their clients but um and look it's not widespread uh, but we are certainly getting people coming to us on that basis and i think you know they've had a bit of time to think about this because um, you know it's not like the GFC where things happen very quickly. That we've had months for businesses to sort of think about what happens when job keep ends. Um, and, and what?
0: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, we've had months to think about when it ends. Yeah. But I guess uh, yeah. So uh, and you mentioned also tax debt. So there's a bit of uh, planning on on the tax side as well.
1: Yeah. Well, there's certainly been some. Uh, businesses that have built up um, a, a large tax debt, um, you know, um, and some of that would be superannuation as well a, a lump in there. So particularly, you know, businesses that um, even if they had uh, JobKeeper support to pay wages, they didn't necessarily um, pay the superannuation. So they're often sitting on a combined liability of the tax office for superannuation and um, PAYG and GST, mainly PAYG.
0: And of course, and- a lot of a lot of people ha- wouldn't have paid their tax debt in. They uh, paid the tax office in, in, in you know, in twelve months. Uh, I was talking to some people in, in your trade who were, who are complaining that um, whereas under normal circumstances they could get an insolvency matter where there's not necessarily any assets to cover their fees, but the good old ATO has uh, has maybe received some preferential payments. But if they haven't, if they haven't been paid a, a nickel in the last six months, there's uh, there's nothing to claw back, is there?
1: Oh, that's absolutely the case. You're right.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, you.
1: All... I, I might add a lot of them haven't been paying, um, you know, some of those struggling businesses probably haven't been paying suppliers other than ab- absolutely ones that they need for um, continued services.
0: Um, and and so is this something because i know that you deal sort of up and down being deloitte obviously you see some pretty some pretty big stuff but but you also uh, you know you're also in the sme space as well so are the conversations you're having different depending on where where you sort of sit on the on the on the food chain uh,
1: well yes yeah, so because i mean there's a, probably a range of, of businesses and i guess the management structure might be more sophisticated i mean at the sme you know, I'm in the SME mid-market space. At the SME level, um, the directors are not quite sophisticated, so um, that's a, a quite a different discussion. You're probably doing an education piece about insolvency laws and what their options are. At the other end, you've usually got a um, sophisticated um, management team and directors and that they usually pick up things quicker and they're, they're probably more open to more innovative solutions. Okay.
0: All right. Well, look. Uh, I think we'll put you back into the waiting room, and I'll introduce our our next guest. Thank you, David. And uh, our next guest is Darren Anderson. G'day, Darren. How are you?
2: G'day, Nick. I'm great. Thanks. How are
0: you? Very, very good indeed. Very good indeed. What uh, What have you been busy doing this week? I should say, Darren Anderson is a managing partner at ERA Legal, um, and you know, Darren is a specialist in insolvency and workouts, but uh, he's also uh, carving out. A bit of a, a sort of a, a, a leading role in working for non-bank lenders as well. I guess you're doing it you just seem to be doing more and more in that um, mortgage space.
2: Yeah, and that's one of the things that's that has been keeping me busy in the last over the last couple of weeks is that the private lending market um, it really seems to be coming back to life. Um, I think I've said once before in the twelve months pre-COVID we settled a pro, uh, around about uh, one billion in. Uh, private lending transactions, and in the first six months of COVID, we settled fifty million. So it was a big, uh, it was a big drop uh, at the start of COVID. But started to come back in about September last year, and I think we're getting back to where we were pre um, pre pre COVID. I also have spent uh, the last ten days or so on and off airplanes, and up until. About ten days ago, I had not had a, I had not been on an aircraft for a year, uh, in twenty days, uh, mm. which was quite remarkable. So I've been been to Adelaide, uh, been to Melbourne a couple of times, and been to the Gold Coast. Uh, and it's great to be able to get back and, and see see people in other states. And I've been out a lot in the last week or so talking uh, to clients. Um, I think the the vibe around town has really improved. Everyone is um, a lot more upbeat, um, certainly in my space, uh, which is in the insolvency and the private lending space. So that's what we've been up to.
0: Um, Now, um, David made a comment that um, he was seeing a bit of personal insolvency work, but also sort of the potential VA stuff where um, people are looking to take action uh, now because they think that creditors might be a little bit more lenient right now. What what do you what's your feeling there? If people are looking to restructure either their businesses or their personal affairs Can we expect Do you think people are going to be a little bit more lenient now than they might be you know in the future?
2: I think there's definitely people are now coming out of the woodwork and and um, Starting looking at restructuring their businesses uh, and restructuring their personal affairs. It's a shame. They didn't do it um yeah, in Over the last 12 months, when we really had the best opportunities to uh, do personal restructures and corporate uh, insolvency restructures, but they're certainly increasing, and you just have to have a look at the wind up list um, yeah. to, to see the number of wind ups that have increased over the last uh, few weeks.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, and uh, so, but when you're talking, because I know obviously you do uh, debt recovery as well. I mean are people you know looking for revenge or are they just looking to get for whatever they can get sort of thing?
2: I haven't found anyone looking for revenge I don't, um, I don't think I think everyone's been uh, pretty pretty fair to each other in terms of um, in terms of the um, the recovery processes. I think i I expected there'd be a much bigger flood of stat demands and mm-hmm. people re- resurrecting their uh, enforcement processes, but I haven't seen that much uh, yet. But I, but I think it'll start to play its way out over the next two or three months. and I think uh, people who are involved in in debt recovery are, uh, are going to become very busy. and And I, I just wonder how the courts the courts are going to cope. Um,
0: well, I have to say, Darren, I mean you right at the very beginning of this COVID stuff, uh, you you of all people said, listen, this this the, the the work's not going to come back for a long time. You know everybody was saying, oh, you know, the end of the year, whenever. I mean, you've always been, I guess, a little bit of a restructuring bear. In, in, you've always said it was going to be later rather than sooner. Um, and, and you've been proven absolutely uh, spot on. Uh, I'm still waiting uh,
2: for the GFC flood of work to come.
0: Right, okay. But you But you are saying though, you do think that things will pick up shortly
1: for, for I think restructuring?
2: That I, well, in terms of picking up, certainly the private lending market has, has picked up. I think that's going to be uh, quite fluid. Uh, And insolvencies will have to pick up because there's a lot of zombie businesses out there and they're going to have to topple over at some point.
0: All right. Yeah. Well, we'll just hold that thought. We'll bring David back and we'll just, if we could just pull up slide five uh, as a bit of a a talking point, we'll sort of pick up exactly where Darren's uh, left us off. Um, and you can see here notifications of company entering external uh, external administration or controller appointments uh, compared with the same week last year. So if you're listening on our podcast, um, you know, no surprise that we've got a blue line for 2020 and uh, it seems to be, you know, roughly 150 to 200 appointments a week. And uh, you compare that to uh, the a red line for FY F- t- uh, 2021, and th- th- the appointments are still at a oh, you know running anywhere up to sort of a 50% of last year. Um, so that's more or less. That's really what you're talking about there, Darren, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. Um, and then if we go to the next slide after that, which is the year, it's the uh, the wind-up notices. I mean, we've just got a slide here showing that in January there was, you know, a little over 20 wind-up notices. In uh, February, we're sort of pushing towards 40. In March, it's really taken off. It's closer to 160. Um, but it's still not uh, the highest of levels. But um, th- those numbers, I mean, that's a substantial increase on what they've been. Um, I wonder why, why is it that they leapt up so much in March, do you think, David?
1: Well, if they were compulsory winding up, so I guess, you know, the... Um the process for lodging, uh, filing statute demands and that working through the system, that will contribute in part to it. But I think, um, I mean, presumably the number of CVLs go into that as well. I think you probably it's probably just that seasonality that people come back in January it probably takes them a little while to get to um, see an advisor and that probably starts ramping up in um, February and March. And if you looked on that previous graph, Although the numbers were down, it sort of followed that cyclical curve for after the you know the ramp up for the beginning of the year. So I think it reflects that.
0: Right. Okay. All right. Well, look, we'll we'll move on to our next slide, which is um, uh, David. I mean, as you know, uh, we we here at the social media home for workouts and uh, restructuring people, and so we're actively monitoring the social media feeds of people like yourself. And um, you you published some uh, Deloitte. Uh, Deloitte presented some data very nicely, and if we could just show the first one, it's uh, basically looking at the impact of JobKeeper around the country. So starting off with this first slide, which shows Australia, what? To just, just, just talk us through what's going on there.
1: Well, I guess the green columns that you can see, and uh, if we look at that, uh, the the chart immediately under the map of the country, that's the the national um, average for JobKeeper. But you can see that. For the months from uh, October through to March, it's the amount of businesses that run JobKeeper as it declines over a period of time. And you can see the, um, the first four months, then it drops down as JobKeeper 2 really starts and then it um, it plateaus out to when it eventually stopped. But you can see the graphs on the far right-hand side uh, that show state by state and perhaps not surprisingly, um, the states that had periods of a lockdown that affected their their economies, they're probably the ones that relied on it the most. So if you see Victoria, um, that the amount of businesses on JobKeeper declined by only 47% from its peak or its start to the end. So that shows at the end, there were still quite a lot of businesses on JobKeeper. And you can see also New South Wales was probably the second um, uh, the second world state, 61%. Uh, the other states, Tasmania, uh, WA and South Australia, they really didn't experience the lockdowns of the other states. Right. Uh, so that's what that reflects.
0: Right. So so we have just, again, for the listeners, we've got these charts and you can find these graphs on David's uh, LinkedIn feed if you look him up on LinkedIn. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we're basically seeing that in WA, South Australia and Tasmania, 70% of the companies that were originally on JobKeeper uh, dropped off by the end of JobKeeper, whereas, uh, as David just said, New South Wales sixty percent have come off. Victoria only forty seven percent. Queensland sixty seven percent. What What are your thoughts on that, um, Darren? You've been travelling the country.
2: Um, yeah, well, I think the, the the JobKeeper. The thing about the JobKeeper is people uh, are going to miss the the free cash coming into their business. So I don't know how they're really going to. There's a lot of businesses being propped up, primarily by job throughout the throughout the entire period. So I, I just can't see how we're not going to get a whole influx of um, of CBLs when people realise um, that there, there's no free cash flow in their business. I just can't see how. how yeah, well, how I mean, I've the, certainly spoken to business people. That's open. Open.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but on the other, I know. I mean, it doesn't make any sense yet yeah, when you talk to people like David. Then it's not like their phones are, being, are ringing off the hook with, uh, with with this just yet. Just if we go to the next slide, actually, we'll skip over the next slide. Go to go I, to slide. I did hear,
2: Nick, there are a lot of inquiries from the insolvency contractors I talk to. They, they, there's always talk over the last couple of months about them receiving a lot more inquiry, right? So not necessarily converting into jobs, but obviously over time, the, the inquiry will convert into jobs.
1: Yeah, and You know, in that sector where we work, um, a lot of that activity is uh, the directors really take that initiative themselves. They're usually pushed. So, you know, it's a, a recovery action by the ATO principally or the Office of State Revenue. That drives their, them to take some, some sort of action or banks. And none of those, as a group, are really pressing for payment. So I think that's why directors have got this, this sort of window period where they've got time to think about things.
0: Okay. Well, look. If we if we just skip to slide nine now, um, and we're not we're not going to sort of do a detailed state by state, but we'll just just to, just by way of example, uh, we'll just have a quick look at New South Wales here. Um, again, it's got the graph there of the total states sixty uh, percent off. Obviously, it's the urban areas that are very heavily concentrated, aren't they? You've got a bit of a it's a bit of a weather map here. You've got the rain clouds there showing that. Uh, um, uh, showing you know where where which parts of regional New South Wales, for example. I mean, what 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 is that data telling you, um, David? Is it it's?
1: I mean, well, I think, just... I think I think the takeaway from it is that the regional areas that were had non-tourist related businesses, they've come back pretty strongly. I right. think uh, uh, urban areas, um, and in New South Wales, it's probably um, it's probably areas you know like the top five were the Canberra, Bursville Burstville, Carlton. Uh, these are areas that have businesses that are, you know, on JobKeeper and that they've been the slowest to, um, come back. And, you know, that probably reflects in part, you know, the, the lockdown that New South Wales experienced. It's probably also, you know, that, that hospitality sector and services sector in New South Wales is very, in Sydney is very strong and that's been badly hit by that. And it hasn't bounced back. You know, you can see it in urban centres around Sydney. There's still a lot of businesses that are actually closed down.
0: All right, well, let's just have a a look at Victoria.
1: And again, very similar, except, of course, there's a lot more businesses on JobKeeper um, across the state, but particularly in urban areas. So it's still that area, still the state that had most businesses on um, JobKeeper. So, and again, the regional areas, non-tourist related, they're the ones that have bounced back pretty quickly.
0: And Queensland, which is the next slide.
1: Yeah, so Queensland, the the areas that are badly affected are uh, the region regional areas are the you know far north Queensland that rely on tourism, which is perhaps not surprising. Um, yeah. Coincidentally, I was up in Cairns a week ago and in Port Douglas, and there are a lot of businesses that have just closed down. Um, so they've already closed down and exited a lot of the hospitality businesses that you spoke to. They were on their, you know, they were saying that they're on their last legs. They really need to have, have a really strong period of domestic tourism to try and keep them afloat. They were just going into the school holidays, so that would that would be good, but they've got to have that momentum carry for a, for quite a few months to come. And again, um, the other areas that are badly affected are are those metropolitan areas.
0: Any any thoughts there, Darren? I know that you get to Queensland a, a fair bit.
2: Yeah, I, I think the problem with places like Port Douglas and, and the businesses closing, it really um, lowers the appeal of the town. If you you know, who wants to go to a town um, that doesn't have any restaurants or uh, is a bit of a ghost town? But hopefully it'll bounce back, particularly given that they that they are going in to their peak season. You know, Cairns, Port Douglas, winter is their peak season. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully we avoid another lockdown. Um, yeah. or we don't get locked out uh, of Queensland by the um, Queensland Premier. Yeah. Uh, people can get up to uh, places like Cairns and Port yeah. Douglas and uh, start spending some money. Well, and yeah, you know, the the
1: other, yep. Sorry. I was just going to add, you know, the other part about that is the cost of uh, accommodation, um, rental cars. That's actually still quite high up there. In fact, that there's been an element of like the... Airbnb accommodation up there because there was no, or in a very few people travelling up there. Those businesses, a lot of those uh, operators have pulled their accommodation and they've gone to permanent rentals. So you haven't got that level of accommodation. So there is, in effect, less less accommodation. So if the tourism numbers pick up, um, you know there will be uh, the high rates for accommodation.
2: And I don't, I don't think, I don't think that people who can afford to travel, people who are lucky, um, like Probably the three of us on this panel who can who can afford to travel really don't mind um, paying the full rate for accommodation uh, and paying um, the full rate or a little bit more for 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 restaurant bills because we know how hard those businesses have suffered. Yeah.
0: Oh sure, sure. Well, yeah, particularly if you take along some uh, some of our mutual friends, Darren, and they start ordering the wine, uh, they're, they're certainly not uh, not frightened to spend uh, when you and I are shouting, that's for sure. Listen, uh, just a very quick look at uh, WA, uh, yeah, so same, same sort of story there. And then, um, you know, again, you know, I guess, you know, interesting Subiaco, Osborne Park, Nedlands. But again, WA overall is 72% off. So it's not quite the not quite the story that the other states are. If we could just flick back to slide eight, this is a, perhaps a more, uh, you yeah, know, another representation there of uh, companies entering XAD. So that's more or less the same story as that previous slide. Any further thoughts on that one, David?
1: Oh, well, I think look, what this shows is uh, there's the, um, to, to your um, Graph that you showed, there is this um, under that there's this vast number of companies that didn't go into liquidation that should have um, in a normal business cycle. So on that graph, the light green bar um, in the middle of that um, graph, that really shows you know that flow of insolvencies coming through. That's why we refer to it this um, wave of insolvencies. Just for the normal flow of insolvencies that we we would have had other than COVID, that will produce that light green bar. And then we're saying, and then there's a, another line above that, we're saying on top of that, you're going to have a, a volume of COVID-induced uh, insolvencies as well. So that's why we're saying there is this build-up of insolvencies that will have to come through the system at some stage.
0: Well, just 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 hold that slide there, um, my producers. So really, that is the wave. You've really, you've, you've, you've done a diagram of the wave there. I mean, I, I've been saying that when you look at the insolvency figures, you know, 2020 owes 2021, you know, an awful lot of insolvencies that didn't happen. And, uh, you know, they can't have just been, you know, if if the numbers halved, you'd expect they're going to happen at some stage. Is that what that graph's telling us?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what do you think about that, Darren?
2: There's going to be a lot of insolvencies where nobody is going to be able to make any return out of it. I can be cynical because there's going to be a lot of business (laughs) that's going to have to be wound up and shut down. Yeah. Um, where there's absolutely no assets to, to sell um, and there's no point in pursuing anyone for uh, voidable transactions or insolvent trading because those people, even if you did have an insolvent trading claim, won't uh, have any resources to meet it. So uh, whilst there's going to be a flood of insolvencies, uh, uh, a very large percentage of those insolvencies are going to be dead jobs.
1: Yeah.
2: like who would want to become a liquidator of a cafe in melbourne yeah what have you got to sell you've got nothing
0: well uh, it's funny you should say that taren i've noticed uh i, I can't remember it's in my facebook or somewhere there's this stream of people selling spruiking um, investment courses how to buy a business for no money down it's like the property spruikers Now they're spruiking businesses I'm thinking how are they doing that maybe it's these cafes and David thank you very much for allowing us uh, to use those slides and I'll just remind uh, our viewers and listeners that uh, they can just go to your LinkedIn feed and um, or reach out to you via LinkedIn right I'll put those details uh, when we when we do the uh, the show brief Um, now I'm going to now we're just going to have a look at something else that was in the news this week now Uh, We had Wyala Steelworks uh, had a wind-up notice stuck on it by uh, Citibank, who I think were acting for Credit Suisse. Now, I am not across any of the details. I don't think any of us here are across the details. So the conversation we're about to have is strictly generic. We're not talking about Wyala Steelworks. Uh, We're not talking about Citibank or, or, or Credit Suisse. But it does raise some interesting questions. As I said, uh, when I saw the media coverage of it, they didn't really quite understand the wind-up process. So um, I've drawn this hypothetical uh, unsecured creditors here um, carrying briefcases uh, who have initiated wind-up action. So just very briefly, given that most of our audience sort of knows what we're talking about, but some of it doesn't, Darren, do you just want to sort of dumb down for us what, what, what exactly
2: that means? Um, in, in the current context, I, I think it's a a, a traditional uh, wind up no, um, notice where you serve a stat demand. This is direct direct to court um, on a basis of of proving, proving insolvency. But what, why why is, why are the unsecured creditors um, spending their money to wind up companies? Uh, if that's the question, um, I, I really do, I, I, I really don't know. Um, particularly where there are substantial institutional uh, creditors which will rank ahead of them, particularly, um, for example, the Commonwealth Government when, when FED comes into play, there's substantial secured creditors in front of them, so really um, unsecured creditors. What the end game is is really hard to understand, particularly given that um, there are significant fees and cost involved in issuing a winding up application uh, in the court. Often, it is done by unsecured creditors in order to get some ransom money out of the out of the creditors. Um, yeah. So you know, file the wind up um, and hope hope you get paid out.
0: Paid out. Well,
2: um, well, and well. wind up dismissed. But uh, in this instance, uh, it's it's obviously a much bigger play. I think I'm on safe territory without sort of upsetting
0: anybody to say that you know there has been a bit of a red rag to the bull in this situation where uh, where Gupta publicly said uh, I'm not paying you know Um, so um, when I heard that you know uh, Darren just under what circumstances just again speaking generically you know under what circumstances can you not pay a debt I mean I'm thinking there's two circumstances either you're insolvent or the debt's not doesn't exist. So if there's no debt, then you don't have to pay it. And I think that in this specific case, Gupta's saying, well, I've got a three-year agreement. There's a lot of technical stuff that we don't know about. So yeah. we're not talking about this case. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah.
2: Or, or is the owner of the business in the in the theoretical sense playing the too-big-to-fail card?
0: Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, again, again, for our listeners, what I've got here, I've drawn a picture of all the stakeholders. So I've got a theoretical client sitting in the middle of it. I've got a bank. I've got suppliers, I've got employees, I've got the government, and I've got these other unsecured creditors that we've just talked about. So we've just said, really, that in this scenario, we think, we, you know, we're not exactly sure what's motivating them. Uh, there might be a ransom scenario, as Darren just said. It could be, as I just said, it could be a bit of a red rag to a bull situation. I mean, speaking generally, um, David, I mean, as when you when you become the administrator or the liquidator of a business, uh, you find yourself having to collect debts, Um, what ha- I, what happens if you you know you've got you start chasing people for money for the company that you're suddenly in control of and they say I'm not going to pay?
1: Um, well, I might just comment on that. The other reason that might be driving some of this the activity from people wanting to wind up companies and that's often if they've got debtor insurance they've actually got to take that step to put the company into liquidation before they can claim on the insurance. So that's that's sometimes an issue uh, that drives otherwise. You question why companies are being wound up, but for you know where they know there's no chance of getting paid. But That often drives drive that activity. Um, so if we're appointed to a company and we've got to recover debts and they don't pay, then you, we've got to make a commercial decision as to whether it's worth further legal action. And you know that'll probably go to the issue of you know the size of the debt. Um, litigation is expensive. Is, is it in dispute? Um, do we think the um, the debtor's got the ability to pay, and or did the company have debtor insurance that we can claim on, but do we have to take it to a certain stage before we can claim the debtor insurance? Okay. So
0: All right, look, what, what we're going to do is... we'll to... Thank you for that. Yeah, that, well, that, well, the debtor insurance is a very interesting angle, and particularly in this specific case is that there is insurance. But but let's... Um, what I want to do is just quickly go around this wheel because we are running out of time a little bit. So I'm going to ask you both. So we've talked about the unsecured creditors who are taking the action. Let's now just flip to the other side of that. Now, I, I, in this particular case, I was listening to... Uh, ABC News the other day and they were interviewing various suppliers and subcontractors and employees and they they all said that they they were really busy they were getting lots of work but again just sort of talking generically if 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 one of your clients approaches you David or you Darren and says look I'm a little bit worried my biggest customer has just had a wind up notice put on them by somebody else what should I do I mean what's your general advice there David in a in a normal situation or yeah not, again not talking about this scenario specifically
1: so it's a customer of the business. So it provides services and goods to the to the business. That yeah, that's like. right.
0: Yeah, that's right. You're you're someone who is a supplier. They've come to you and said, "Look, I'm a bit worried. Someone else has stuck a wind up notice. Well, you know, should I keep supplying?"
1: Uh, well, yes, um, they they should. Well, they've got to make that decision. They want to secure the the that they're going to get paid for it. The- for the, the goods they're supplying, so you know they may want to make sure they're getting COD or they're they're, they're getting some sort of additional security in place to cover that, whether it's personal guarantee or or um, something else. But what we have seen, even in our practice, um, like amongst business service clients, businesses are looking at their supply chain, and if there's critical suppliers that they that they they um, in part of their supply chain. They are looking to see is their company, you know, able to be a continual viable business, and do they need support from them if they think they're in financial hardship, and how how can they help them um, to continue in business?
0: Darren, what are your thoughts? Because you certainly can't take security all of a sudden,
2: can you? Well, you can. You can. You can take. You can take security. I agree with David's um, comments. Mm-hmm. You can take security. I'd grab as much security if as I can. Now, it may be that that security is subject to some form of challenge down the track if the company goes into liquidation, um, but you can take some third-party security, but it's much better to grab the security and, and have it and have someone attack it than not have it at all. So I'd be grabbing the security. I'd definitely be going uh, COD um, immediately, um, and I'd be um, having a chat and reviewing the um, what the collection Collections team uh, has been doing within the business to to uh, limit the exposure to um, a preferential payment claim by a future liquidator.
0: Okay, um, and we've got a question here about whether or not that would cause a um, a, a, a clawback under a pre, you know, preferential clawback from uh,
2: I mean, you, our if view you on my security. Idea, if, if you if you took security from the company at a time when it was insolvent. That that security interest would be would be challenged, but as I right. say, uh, it's better better to take it than not have it and let someone uh, attempt to challenge it. But I but really I think what David was getting at was looking at third party security, so taking yeah. directors or or, or, or from an, from another third party. But I think David's also right. You've got to continue. To supply, as long as you get paid for those supplies as you make them, because if you if you're a critical supplier and you don't supply, well then the business is finished.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's one of the scenarios. Here. Okay. Well, just uh, okay. Well, let's move on to the bank now. Again, we're not talking about this scenario specifically, but just imagine that there is a scenario where there is a secure creditor, the, the secured the bank's holding all the security, obviously, and all of a sudden someone's uh, stuck a wind up notice. You know, I know that certainly in my case, uh, you know, I'm on the phone with a client just making sure that, that it's being dealt with accordingly. But what you, D- David, um, you, you, have, you obviously act for, uh, for all the major banks at various times. Uh, a scenario where one of the unsecured suddenly slips in a wind-up notice wouldn't be
1: an unusual one for you? No, look, I, I, it would be very rare for a bank to be unaware of a, a winding up petition against a company that's on their watch list and for it to go and slip into liquidation without them knowing. Um, most of the banks would have some idea about that coming. Um, and I think that they would review their position and see what options are available to them. You know, just because there's a winding up petition on foot doesn't mean there's um, an act of default. So, they may not necessarily be able to point a receiver immediately anyway even if they wanted to um, i mean the banks have in, you know generally been willing to work with insolvency practitioners practitioners after they've been appointed they probably want to see who's been nominated see if it's somebody that they think that they could work with um and they'd also want to assess their position whether they think the company going into liquidation is going to you know compromise the position of the company you know if there's leases on foot or or it's going to trigger um, unintended consequences that they may not want to go to liquidation. That may be the trigger for a receiver being appointed.
0: Uh, Darren, anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, I can't really speak for the
2: banks because um, for, for for the top tier banks uh, as to what is in their mind, because often they're difficult to work out. But for in the private lending market, if the uh, if I had a private lender, which was a secured creditor, the first thing you do is assess what their security uh, position is and. You know the snap appointment of, of a receiver isn't necessarily always the right move because with the appointment of a receiver or taking control of security, um, you you can actually incur significant liabilities um, on behalf of the of, of the secured creditor. You know you're, you're looking at uh, if it's land, for argument's sake, you're looking at. Uh, having to pay land land taxes and and, and statutory charges right right um, ensuring the property uh, making m- making sure um, everything is secure so there are a number of things that 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 come into play uh, and and sometimes uh, it might be the case just to allow as David said allow the liquidator if you can work with the liquidator um, do the job for you yeah I guess. Uh
0: I mean, I think that's also sometimes in these scenarios, the unsecureds taking the wind up action. Sometimes I felt as though someone's trying to hold a gun at my head as a secured creditor as well. You know, uh, the bank might be thinking, "Well, we better we better write a check to make these people go away." All right, just just moving on then to the we've talked about the unsecureds, the other suppliers, of the bank. Um, what about the employees? What Darren? I know that your firm um, certainly does a little bit of work in the in the Feg space. I mean, what would what would Feg be thinking? In the – does it suddenly come on their radar because there's a wind-up? Certainly, obviously, the steelwork situation's been in the news, so I'd find it hard to believe that Feg wouldn't uh, wouldn't be giving you know wouldn't be wouldn't have this sitting on someone's desk.
2: Yeah. Um, well, for, for well, for the employees, you know, FEG, Feg is great for the employees if they lose their job, right? But the employees really don't want to lose their job. the The, mm. the, the employees want to keep their job. So, as a last resort, FEG is great for the employees. Um, if, if the employees do lose their job and, uh, job and uh, FEG has to come into play, well, you know, FEG's really playing quite an aggressive role now, which it's not necessarily a bad, uh, a bad thing in, in holding uh, liquidators and secure creditors to account in, in, in terms of what they do in relation to winding up, winding yeah. up businesses. Um, well, they have—they've
0: become the de facto regulators, if you ask me. But that's—that's um, that's really what, you know—that's really what they've done. All right, look, uh, we, we are—we are sort of winding on the clock. So I just thought we'd finally come to the other stakeholder, is the government. Now, again, you know, in this particular scenario. Uh, you know, there's five or 6,000 jobs. And, we, you know, obviously, particularly South Australia uh, doesn't want to see those those jobs go. I mean, nobody wants to see those jobs go. And so, you know, everybody turns to the government and says, you know, what are you going to do about it? And there's talk. I think we've got a, one of the headlines, actually. Um, if I go, to, if we go to slide three, just briefly, uh, we've got, you know, South Australia mulls bridging loan for Sanjeev Gupta's Wyala Steelworks. Now, I wonder who's going to get that loan. Uh, does it go to Sanjeev, or, or you know, if he's got his, uh, if if he's got uh, someone winding him up, uh, I I just wonder, is, is it, it, would the government then be bailing out? The employees, or will they be in fact uh, bailing out Credit Suisse in this particular scenario? Um, And then we've also got Canberra, Mull's, Wyala Steelworks Rescue Plan. So, you know, we've got the state government and the federal government um, looking at, you know, obviously they're thinking about trying to save those jobs. And I think uh, there might be an election coming up in South Australia. Is that right, Darren?
2: Um, I'm not sure about this election coming up in South South Australia, but there's certainly an election coming up uh, federally. Uh, before the end of the end of the year in my view but my question always is you know in a capitalist system why are government um bailing out private businesses and, um, you know private business doesn't want the government involved in their businesses when times are good but uh, they want them people want the government want big government um to bail out businesses when it suits them so i, I don't understand why the government would be bailing out um this particular business
0: Well, I know myself that when I'm looking at a restructuring scenario, uh, I ask myself the question, um, am I rescuing the bank or am I rescuing the client? I mean, it's one thing to rescue the client. Obviously, as I say, you want to save the business and save the jobs. But usually, you know, usually in order to be able to provide you know, the business with, with some extra cash flow, um, you've got to deal with the incumbent lenders. Now, if it's someone who's got a, a wind-up action, you obviously don't want to lend to a business and then they get wound up, so you need to deal with that. And if there's if there's a bank that might be taking precipitous action as well, uh, you don't want to be, uh, you know, you've got to, you, you may have to pay them out in order to get your hands on security. So, so well, my question is, you know, how do you make sure that you're bailing out the customer and not bailing out their, their, their creditors?
2: I think that I think the question the question is always got to be, Nick, if, if you were looking at it um, to refinance it, you're not going to want, want to refinance a business for three months. You're going to want to refinance it and have it as a client of yours uh, for long term. So the first thing you're going to look at is whether it's a viable business.
0: Yeah, 100%, 100%. I mean, I've always said that, uh, you know, we've, we've got two two criteria and one of those criteria is, you know, uh, is, is it a viable business? I mean, do, is there enough runway to uh, to make sure that, as I say, we're not just bailing out everybody, that the, the company is being rescued? Any thoughts yourself there, David?
1: Well, look, I won't talk to that, but what I will say about the federal government and FED for that matter as well, um, you know, federal government agencies, there are, there are signs where they're taking an all-of-government approach to a matter. So we've had voluntary administrations where there's been a proposal put up, tax officers' major creditor. Fed could potentially be a major creditor if the business closed down. That would trigger a lot of payments that they would have to be be paid out. And so in that case, the tax office voted for the proposal because they could see the total amount um, that the federal government would have to pay out would have been a lot more than what they would have got as a... um, a return on the uh, liquidation or administration. So, and I've seen that as well with other uh, federal government agencies where they've taken this all the government view. So, I think that that is um, uh, a, a pleasing development because okay. they have traditionally always been that way.
0: All right. Well, look, uh, we've actually run our, run time a little bit, so uh, I think we'll we'll draw the line there. Thank you very much uh, to, to Darren Anderson, the uh, managing partner at ERA Legal, and thank you, David Mansfield, Deloitte restructuring partner. Any closing comments, guys? Just before we we, we wrap up and say goodbye. I'll start with you, David.
1: Oh, look, I think the uh, the next uh, six months will be very telling. I think we will, I think insolvencies will increase, but I think it's going to be slow, but I think um, there's clearly an indication that a lot of people are wanting to take proactive action and um, try and see if they can do informal arrangements, so I think we're going to see a lot more of that activity. That's interesting. Informal arrangements. Okay, Darren, your closing thoughts?
2: Um, my closing um, comment to people is get out and some, spend some money uh, over the weekend yeah. if you can afford to do so at those businesses, particularly hospitality and tourism businesses. Um, that have suffered so much. Get out when you can and spend some money and help those businesses get back on their feet.
0: Okay, very good. All right, well, there you go. A rallying cry from Darren there. Uh, so, all right, well, thank you very much, gentlemen, for uh, for joining us uh, today. It's been very interesting, so that's why we've run o- uh, over time. Uh, thank you very much to, uh, to our live stream viewers and listeners and uh, thank you to everybody who's downloaded our podcast um, and we'll do it all again next week. Thank you very much and goodbye. Cheers.